May we affirm our faith with joy and a willing spirit as we hear today's scripture. Our first reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. Our second reading is from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way, seeing I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in that peace, your peace will rest upon that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in that same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you today. This is God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God. It's a joy to be with you today on your 50th anniversary. Um, I usually try to start with a little bit of humor, and the adjective is on little, but um, <laughs> this particular story came to mind. Um, I'm new to you and this congregation, and it reminded me of a pastor whom uh, was appointed to a new church, and he wanted to make a good first impression. So he worked hours and hours on a first sermon. He really wanted to have something dramatic on that first Sunday. Multiple drafts, throughout different editions, you know, just sort of worked constantly on it. Finally, he crafted something that he thought would be a great sermon. Comes the big day, and it's really exciting for him and the congregation. Gets into the pulpit, and he delivers this sermon. And he thinks he's nailed it. He thinks... This is, this is a great sermon, and the people really will be appreciative of it. Afterwards, in the receiving line, everybody's affirmative, you know, thanking him, welcoming him. And then he comes across uh, this little bald-headed old man who <laughs> shakes his hand and says, Thank you very much for the sermon, Reverend. But you know, it was a little confusing, and you lost me at various points. Well, this was his first constructive criticism. So he thanked the man rigorously and said, you know what, I'm going to work on this. You come back next week, I'll have a better sermon for you. <laughs> Goes 
greets the next line of people, and there in line again is the little bald-headed old man. <laughs> Shakes his hand and says, thank you very much for the sermon, Reverend, but you know, it was a little too long, and I tuned out the second half of the sermon. <laughs> well, you know, he said, I appreciate this constructive criticism. I'm going to work on shortening this up. You come back next week, and I'll have a better sermon for you. Finishes out the rest of the line, and there at the end is the little ball-headed old man once again. Shakes his hand and says, thank you very much for the sermon, Reverend. But you know, it was really kind of boring, and I fell asleep through most of it. Well, now this pastor's mad. He thinks to himself, this guy made a point to come in line three times to insult me. So he goes and finds the lay leader, pulls the lay leader aside and says, who is that little bald-headed old man? And the lay leader apologetically says, oh, don't mind him, Reverend. He's a little bit off. He just goes around repeating what he hears other people saying. <laughs> not like this sermon. Um, I'm glad there's no receiving line formally. Uh, we will greet you in the social hall afterwards. Uh, you don't have to come up three times, though, to tell me about it. Just get it all out at once and we'll be fine. I do want to congratulate all of you, though, on 50 years, especially our charter members. What a joy to have you with us. I uh, do a lot of anniversary services and sermons, and oftentimes it's 100 years or 150 years, and there's no charter members. <laughs> but the fact that you have them still vibrant and active in your midst is such a, a joyous celebration. So thank you, all of you, charter members and all of you who've come since then. I know how difficult these anniversaries are to plan, and you have a wonderful slate of celebrations coming. I also want to uh, acknowledge your pastors, uh, uh, Reverend Rachel, whom uh, we heard about, I heard about at the uh, convocation for clergy last week, and uh, my prayers go out with her. I, I hope that it'll be a short recovery and she'll be back with you soon. Also want to acknowledge Reverend Walt. Um, Walt and I go back to uh, maybe 25 years uh, Board of Ordained Ministry together that we served. And um, I, I'm really appreciative. I've been doing this uh, appointment work for about 20 years now. And Reverend Walt is one of those pastors that wherever we put him, he thrives, he builds, he increases the numbers. Wherever he goes, he does that. And I wish we could clone him because I have a lot of pastors who don't do that. Um, and um, the fact that we do have Reverend Walt and others who are able to do that makes it just such a joy to be in that appointment process. Now, the nature of anniversaries have a threefold time dimension. We look back at the past and we celebrate that past. We are in the present in which you're doing your celebrations. And then we look to the future with a sense of hope. But this is what I need to remind you. The past is gone, and it's never going to be recovered. The present is all we have, and we need to make a difference now. But it is to the future 
that we have to look. It is to the future that your planning and your work now needs to focus on. So this prompts a couple of questions for you. What is your next big dream as a congregation? What is your next major goal? To use Jim Collins, the leadership guru, what is your next BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal <laughs> for this church and this surrounding community? In the uh, scripture passages, I think we get some hints. In the Luke 10 passage, Jesus gathers the 70 um, followers, and it's beyond the 12 disciples, included women in this 70 plus. And he sends them out two by two to carry out the ministry that he himself started. You see, we have here Jesus adapting. His leadership changes. Before this, he went out alone. He went out and he preached to the crowds. He preached, he taught, he healed, he raised the dead by himself. But the crowds became too large. Their needs too great. He couldn't cover it all. It reached the point that people had to touch his garment in order to be healed. And he realized this is not working him alone. So what does he do? He takes his closest followers. He gives them all the powers that God gives him to preach, to teach, to heal, to raise the dead. And he sends them out to cover all of the towns and the areas that he himself cannot get to. And they do this faithfully and lovingly. Now, the scripture doesn't say this, but I'm sure the same thing happened to these 70 plus people. Even though they went two by two, the crowds became too large, the needs too great, the services too much for them. And what they did then was to create the Christian church. Even after Jesus died, they had a strategy to multiply. Now, what we're saying here is the Acts church takes over from this Luke passage. And it doesn't stop with Jesus, his resurrection and death. It extends beyond that. And we're here because of that Acts church. We are the heirs to this process, this multiplication. Each one of you in your baptism is given these same powers that Jesus gave the disciples. Preach, to teach, to heal, to raise the dead. And you come Sunday, you hopefully are inspired by this word, and then we send you out to your families, to your loved ones, to your places of work, to your communities, and you do the same ministry that is done by the followers and the church of Jesus Christ. We've simply forgotten this, folks. We clergy have sort of taken over that, and you expect us to do that, but again, we're only single people. 
We can't affect this whole community. But if all of you carry out this mission, think of how we can multiply the people of God feeding everybody who needs it. You have been empowered by your baptism to do this work. Now, in this Acts passage, then we hear what goes on. They regularly hear the word of God through the preaching, verse 42. They continue in steadfast prayer. They continue in right relationship with God, awe and fear. Miracles and signs work through the apostles, make a deep impression on everyone, verse 43. They engage in deep and abiding fellowship, sharing everything they possess with anybody with need, verse 44. And because of all that, the church flourishes. The Lord adds daily to their number. I'd love to pastor a church like that. I would love that every church in our annual conference would be an Acts 2 church. This church needs to be an Acts 2 church. And many of you are here because the church fulfilled some of these Acts. So, on this important anniversary kickoff, how can you be more like an Acts 2 church? What can you do to embody this principle? How can you commit yourself to go out to the community and loved ones and carry this gospel message? We're struggling because the church has changed so much in the last 20 to 30 years. We're reaching a point where people are not affiliating with churches or anything anymore. I have a, a friend who's a consultant, and she's recently consulted with the Girl Scouts of America because their numbers are dropping, and they don't know what they're going to do if no younger girls continue to sign up to be Girl Scouts. One, there would be no Girl Scout cookies in the future. <laughs> but this is the tenor of our time. Young people are not affiliating with any organization. Rotary Club, all of the Lions, all of those things, they're all dwindling because young people are not attracted to organizations. So there's a couple of formulas that we've been sort of hawking, sort of putting out there. And one of them is a simple formula called high-tech, high-touch. High-tech, high-touch. You see, people will not drop by the church anymore. They won't pass your church and say, oh, there's a church that we should go visit. Especially young people. If they're interested in all, they're going to go online. And they're going to go to your website. And they're going to navigate that website looking for something that would interest them. And young people are interested in making a difference. Not only in the whole world, but in the local community. So they're going to look for something that makes a difference. A feeding program. A homeless program. Uh, a program that uh, is affecting the community. And if they see that on your website, they may come out to an event. And that's it. That's the extent of their commitment. High tech means you have to attract them 
through computer and internet. But once they set foot on your property, it's got to be followed up by high touch. Because again, they're looking for a sense of belonging, a sense of community. They don't get that being wired. I don't know if you have this phenomenon, but I sit sometimes in rooms where two people, young people will be in the same room and they're texting each other rather than talking with each other. This is a, a phenomenon of that age group. They're so wired, they're looking for human interaction, belonging, a community which accepts them unconditionally. But remember, this is an important thing for our churches. They don't just want to come and hang out. They want to make a difference. So to integrate them, you don't just have to welcome and care for them. You have to make sure that they're given some leadership responsibility. You have to give up some leadership of your own in order to empower them to take over. These are important lessons for us as we're trying to get younger, bring in younger generations. And those kids that were sitting up here, they're going to be here 25, 30 years from now. Many of us won't be. That's our future. That's whom we have to attract. Now, high tech, high touch. It starts with computers. It ends with relationship building. It's all about relationship building. From the pastor down to the youngest child, everyone has to be a relationship builder. Let me give you a personal example um, about this, and I'll share a little bit about my life. Uh, my parents were both born not too far from here. My mom in Ventura and my dad in uh, Santa Maria area, uh, both native Californians. And um, the war broke out um, and engulfed all of them, and they were all their families were interned in the Japanese camps. And my family went to Santa Anita as a temporary camp, and then they went to Gila, Arizona for the permanent camp. And that's where my parents met. I'm actually here because they met in a camp. Um, most of them spent about two to three, sometimes four years in the camp. That was my mom. But my dad was drafted out of the camps into the US military, if you can believe it. These young, Second generation, we call them Nisei Mim, were prime to serve. And the US was very smart. The military was very, uh, they knew that they probably would win the war and they would have to have translators in Japan when they won the war. So my dad was drafted, if you believe it or not, into military intelligence. It's <laughs> so the irony of all ironies, being forced to give up everything and then uh, be incarcerated and then uh, serve as military intelligence, but to be a translator to Japanese. Now, my dad's Japanese was terrible. <laughs> he, was, he was an American born and raised here. He, he had no ties to Japan. Uh, he could say a few words to his parents who didn't speak that much English, but that was about it. So they sent him to Japanese language school. 
and he went there for, he said, uh, about a year, and he graduated, and he, his Japanese was terrible, he said. So sure enough, the U.S. wins the war. He's deployed in Japan, and his uh, unit um, is there to uh, be post-occupying Japan. And he was attached to a unit where his captain spoke fluid Japanese, fluent Japanese. And my dad, he said, the captain would um, meet the people of the village and ring up my dad, and he said, look, this is my Japanese translator, but he doesn't know very much, so you could talk to me directly. <laughs> my dad would laugh and tell that story, and he said it was the easiest assignment in the history of the US military that he's ever been served. After the war, though, after he, he uh, was discharged, um, the West Coast, they were born and raised here. They wanted to come back, but it was a little bit too hot, they said. In other words, the racism was still too high. So they migrated back to the Midwest, and that's where my sister and I were born, in Chicago, Illinois. And they tried to put their lives back together. Um, they ran a snack shop in uh, Chicago, um, and we were born in a really bad section, uh, south side of uh, Chicago. Uh, I try to go visit there every time I go back, and they nobody will take me there because they say it's too, you know, bad an area. And I said, well, hey, I, I travel south central L.A. Don't worry about me. Um, but um, the po the point of this was that they longed to get back to California, where their roots were. And when I was five years old, we came back to to California, and we had relatives in San Jose, California, and that's where we landed. And it was a sleepy little orchard town when I, um, we landed there. Not anything at all. Now it's this high-tech giant where you can't even afford to buy a house. Uh, my sister still lives in our family house, and that's the only reason that she's able to afford San Jose. But they baptized us as infants, and they wanted to feel, fulfill the mandate to take us to church because that's your vow in baptism. You will raise your children in church. And so when we went back to San Jose, they decided they would take us to Sunday school every Sunday. And at first, my parents would drive up in the car, drop us off for Sunday school, and sit in the car and read the newspaper. Okay. Now, they weren't the only ones. There's a whole line of cars in front of the church <laughs> with parents who did this exact same thing every Sunday. But this church was very smart. Talk about high relation. They sent out greeters to the people parked, knocked on the door window and said, hey, it's a little cold out here. Why don't you come inside? We have coffee and donuts. No obligation. You don't have to go to service. You don't have to do anything. Just come on in. And my parents every Sunday would politely say, no, we're fine here, thank you very much. Our children are in Sunday school. Every Sunday they would come out, knock on their window, invite them in. One Sunday they decided, okay, they're gonna bug us, let's go in. They dressed, went inside, and that was life-changing for our family. From that Sunday on, my parents never missed Sunday worship. They would come as a, we would come all as a family. We would go to Sunday school, they'd go to worship. And as the time went on, the whole family got really active in this church. It's still there, Wesley United Methodist Church in San Jose. And 
Um, my parents went on to become, you know, leaders of the church, taught Sunday school. My sister and I taught Sunday school, and I led the youth group, and whole nine yards. It was life-changing for our family. Now, my dad was always self-employed, and my mom was the classic 60s, 70s stay-at-home mom. We don't have that anymore. I was at a um, youth event, um, junior high students. They were confirmed. And they all, like 12 churches got together, and I was their guest speaker, and we all confirmed them together. It was a wonderful event. Junior hires are just so active and inquisitive. And um, I was giving them a talk, and it was pretty off the top of my head. And I got to the point where I was describing my mom, which was a stay-at-home mom, and they looked quizzically because none of their moms stayed home. All of their moms worked. They didn't know what I meant when I said a stay-at-home mom. So I started thinking about this. How can I explain stay-at-home mom to them? And as a baby boomer, hit me right away. The icon of motherhood for a baby boomer was June Cleaver of Leave It to Be. Okay? So I said that. Who? They never heard of Leave It to Beaver. They never heard of June Cleaver. Uh, uh, Barbara Billingsley died a couple years ago. I was the only one who cried, I think, on that day. So, okay, that doesn't have to work. So I'm thinking, okay, I got to think of some other... Oh, then it hit me. Um, um, Claire Huxtable of The Cosby Show. This was before Bill got in trouble, by the way, so I, I didn't, have to, didn't have to explain anything to them about that. But um, she was a great mom, you know? She was a lawyer, but she is a, a great mom, and they had no idea who Claire Huxtable was. They didn't know what the Cosby show was. So I'm stuck, okay? Because I, I don't follow TV too much anymore. And then it just popped in my mind, Marge Simpson of The Simpsons. Oh, the light bulb went off for them. Immediately they go, oh, we know what you mean. We know Marge Simpson. Okay, all right. It later uh, struck me that if Marge Simpson is the, the icon of motherhood, we're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> but Reverend Wall could pick up that sermon later. Um, June Cleaver, Claire Huxtable, Marge Simpson, they had nothing on my mom. My mom would iron our socks. <laughs> My mom would iron our underwear. Every, sun, every Monday, we would have new sheets, iron sheets, by the way. She would wash and iron the sheets and hospitalize the corner, perfectly made beds. In fact, every day, she would make our beds and fluff up the pillows like hotel service. There was a home-cooked meal from scratch every evening and a home-cooked dessert of which she excelled. Not a speck of dust in the whole house. She ran it like clockwork. One day I saw her to-do list, and it was like 30 items of that day that she was going to undertake. So never tell me that women don't work full-time in the household, because if you paid them for that job, you couldn't pay them enough. She was the center of our household, and because of that, we were a very close family. But life intervenes, and none of us can escape it sometimes. 
When I was 14 years old, um, my mom developed a limp for no reason. And after exhaustive medical tests, they found that it was malignant. But they couldn't find the source of it. Medical technology wasn't what it is now. And she was determined to beat this. But after one round of chemotherapy, we lost her right before Christmas. And you can imagine, somebody that active in the household, that center, it was like the bottom fell out of our family. My sister and I did not know how to do anything. Luckily, we had a dad who was really resourceful and able to teach us because my, we were too young for my mom to teach us. In fact, she did everything. We didn't have to do anything. Now, as you can imagine, um, it was a tough time. And I remember specifically, each one of us had a set of friends who came right after we lost her to visit and pay respects. And it was then I noticed that the people who stayed the longest, the people who cared about us the most, was our church friends. And each one of us had a set of those. The funeral service was going to be really tough. We were really active in that church. And um, we knew that it, it was going to be really hard to get through this. And I'll remember, never forget, the sanctuary filled that day. And then the basement of the church filled. And then people kept coming, so they didn't know where to put them. So they stuck them in an educational wing, which was set apart from the sanctuary. And there was no audio or video feeds so back then. So some people had to sit through this whole service without hearing or seeing a thing. Afterwards, it was a beautiful service. The pastor just buoyed us with the hope of the resurrection. He talked about my mom's love and how much she cared about the world. And it just was a, a, a wonderful way for us to know that she made a difference. We were to lead the um, processional to the burial site. And I remember coming out, and we were the lead car. And this is a very long street that this church is on. And I remember looking out at all the cars that were lined up to follow us. And I literally could not see the end of the line. And that's when it hit me, folks. With all these people who love my mom, who are praying caring for us, how could we not make it? How could we not survive? And we did. We did. It is the example of high touch in my life. And my loyalty to the United Methodist Church would never falter. Not only that event, but dozens of other events that that church took care of me. And I wouldn't be preaching here today without that kind of witness, without that kind of support from a church. This is the church of Jesus Christ transforming lives, transforming my life. And I stand not as an individual pastor here, but as a person who's undergirded by a church much like this one. How many 14-year-olds or others are in your midst, in this community, facing this kind of 
loss of meaning, that this church can be the center of healing and transformation for them. That's why you're here. That's your purpose. I know it's difficult in our times. People are not coming to churches. But that's why we have to go out into this community around us and be there for others. We've got to invite them into this love that you all know is here. We've got to bring people here who will not have that experience that I had as a 14-year-old boy. Something that each one of you can extend your baptism and healing and transformation. Let me close with this story. There was a young couple who started attending a church very much like this one, active, vibrant. And the pastor had seen them a couple of weeks before, but didn't get down to stop to talk with them, just greeted them and then had to rush off. So they made an appointment to see the pastor. And after service one Sunday at the appointment, he brought them into his office and he said, I'm so glad to get to talk with you, get to meet you, to get to finally greet you. And they gushed over the church, how friendly it was, how much they felt welcome. And then they said, Pastor, would you do us a favor? And he said, of course, anything you need. And they said, would you baptize our child? And he'd never seen them with a child. So he just assumed that, you know, maybe the child was in Sunday school, but never had saw the child. Went through the baptism litany with them, the requirements, and um, they all agreed, set the date next Sunday for the baptism. And then they asked him, Pastor, would you be willing to do a memorial service for our child? Confused, he said, is there another child that you have that's ill? And they said, no, Pastor, it's the same child. She's been struggling and fighting a childhood cancer for years and years, traditional and experimental medicine. And now we're at the point that the doctors have said, there's nothing else we can do. So you'll take her home and just care for her in her waning days. We wanted to bring her to this church, be baptized, know the joy of the household of faith, Oh, gosh, he was heartbroken. He had no idea this was going on in this family. And he said, I'm so sorry. Is there anything else I could do for you? And the couple looked at each other and said, Oh, pastor, you already have. You see, unbeknownst to him, three of the couples of that church had taken this young family under their wing. They had known them. They had um, brought them food. They had stayed at the hospital. They had watched their house when they were at the hospital long hours. The most important thing is they had prayed with them in their dark hours. And they, in fact, were the ones who invited this couple into church. The pastor had no idea this was going on. And after a final prayer with them, he ushered them to his door, opened it, and there in the hallway were those three couples waiting to receive this family, there to put their arms around them, to love them, and to pray for them. Folks, this is the church of Jesus Christ at its very best. 
This is what I'm asking of every one of you, every one of our churches. As you look at your future, we do have to bring in new and younger people, but you all are fundamental in fulfilling that high touch, that sense of the gospel message being transferred. As you look at the next 50 years of your church's life, may that be the mission. May that be what you're all about. Amen.